0: Welcome to the Worship Theology Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeremy Perigo, and this is a space where we want to think deeply about worship, the how, the why, the theology of, and the practice of worship. Today, I have my friend, Dr. Adam Perez, who's the Assistant Professor of Worship Studies at Belmont and Nashville. Today, we're going to dig into some of his research and just think about worship, particularly congregational song, and that impact on different um, denominations and different communities. Welcome, Adam. Hey, thanks for having me. I'd love. This is a question we ask, yeah, a lot of our our guests. But um, just to get to know you, for those who are listening, what's what's a meaningful worship experience you've had in Christian worship? Again, you've yeah, experienced, you've studied, you've engaged, led in different contexts. But when you when you hear that question, what first comes to mind?
1: Yeah, I um I have a few like really specific and powerful memories, but one of them that I think is telling somehow is i remember being in chapel at yale divinity school where i did my master's degree and it's like it's almost like an like a like a shadow of a memory i like i remember just like not being able to get up after the worship service just like sitting there and thinking and the verse uh came to mind you know sort of i don't know kind of silly but like the oh that i could dwell in the house of the lord forever um and honestly i don't remember Anything about that service? Like, I don't remember what happened. Like, who preached? What songs we sang? But I remember just being, like, like uh, not even frozen because that seems like passive somehow. I remember being like just like the gravitational pull to my chair being so powerful. Of like, I wanted to it to keep going, continue, like to stay in that moment something powerful and palpable and and generally with my worship experiences there um it was often revelatory it wasn't just like positive emotional experiences or whatever it was that i i encountered something that felt new and um and in some ways like i think my vision of worship leading as part as a way of telling God's story and inviting people to imagine themselves as part of God's story um, in new and fresh ways comes from that kind of experience that I had that I can't even name, but I but I know the desire in me that it stirred up.
0: Mm. So it was it was it yeah, new content, new thought, new connection well, with the story. I could tell you, that... but I
1: don't I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember.
0: Yeah. But it moved you and it, but it moved shaped me. you. It moved yeah. me.
1: Yeah. The other also one other little yeah. quick story which is when I was 7th grade, 8th grade, 7th grade probably, um the drummer at my church his family moved away and they needed a drummer and I was like interested, you know, but I was not skilled. <laughs> and, um, I have a, a, like a terrifying memory, uh, meaningful, but terrifying memory of like that first Sunday of sitting behind the drum kit and the worship leader being like, Hey, just focus on like doing it w- this was like integrity music from the nineties. So it was like, just focus on the hi hat and the snare. Like, don't, don't even worry about cymbals. Don't worry about the kick drum, like just do the hi-hat and the snares, you know, like just get, cause back then we used a hi-hat now, you know, uh, the hi-hat's out of favor, but, um, but, but the like level of, it was meaningful because the level of trust, I felt like that was put in me in that moment to like be part of leading the congregation in this, like, you know, important experiential moment at a level that was like possible for me, but still supported what was happening. Hmm. Um, like what a risk, you know? Maybe mm. it was their only choice. Maybe I was like last resort, you know. They, they, they really no needed that hi hat and sna- <laughs> They
0: really needed a high hat and snare, no matter Yeah, yeah.
1: That's no matter right. how out of tempo they couldn't or... do, I will enter. His case Thanksgiving, uh, you know, we needed something to to keep us up tempo or something. I don't know. I don't know. But uh but the level of trust that I felt mm. like uh, you know, uh entrusted with at that point and a
0: hospitable space for fun. you to yeah, yeah to to be a part of that leadership which is right. yeah it doesn't always happen in in churches today but it's good on your good on your church for yeah for, for, and i mean for we were a church of open.
1: like 250 you know yeah. it wasn't like a tiny church either i mean 250 is technically above average but yeah. you know not huge either yeah. uh, but maybe we'll get back to that issue of size later maybe we'll come around
0: what yeah you're you're a theologian in worship studies. Have a doctorate from Duke. Actually, can We're, I
1: just say I I think I don't even want to describe myself as a theologian ooh. of worship. Like I I think of His, myself as first order historian.
0: Li, li, a liturgical historian is that a what you worship historian? W- worship I avoid historian. the word
1: liturgy because you know it has baggage for the folks like me who are uh, well for many folks, including folks like me who have worshipped and had meaningful experiences in a variety of
0: Non-liturgical traditions (laughs) that
1: are, yeah, yeah, anti-liturgical, quote unquote liturgical. You know, the whole everybody has a liturgy, blah blah blah. But the word itself has some some baggage, and so yeah, a worship historian. That's how I think of myself, and I avoid sometimes making at least um, strong theological claims because Mm -hmm. uh, it makes me nervous as a historian. Um, I can tell you what people have done and maybe we might ask questions about what that might mean for how we operate today, but like blanket theological statements make me nervous.
0: What is the, yeah, maybe for those that uh, we've had Lester Ruth on here, others who would kind of be in that worship historian space, but what, yeah, what's the role maybe of of a worship historian, both maybe for the academy, but also yeah. what's maybe the role for the the church?
1: Yeah. Yeah, maybe one way of getting into this is uh, just talking about a class I'm trying to teach right now called, uh, and I've called it Worship History for Worship Renewal. So I kind of put, put in the title, kind of the trajectory. Um, and the idea for me is that worship history provides us all sorts of raw material on how Christians have tried to faithfully respond to uh, the work of the spirit in the present context and the co- sort of like inheritance of the church, the immediate past that they, you know, bring with them. And um, it's not uh, generally, you know, historically it's, it's not uh, monolithic, you know, the diversity is astounding. Um, the amount of sort of cultural distinctions and differences are astounding. Um there's no one moment in history where worship, where, you know, Christian worship got it right. Um, And so I I find it's a helpful um, sounding board for when we think about the challenges we face in worship today to help us see outside of ourselves. So, okay, you know, here's a a problem I identify, you know, um, the professionalization of worship leaders, right? Like, uh, you know, all of a sudden it's become such a, like, um, Uh, uh, yeah just a high caliber high quality but also like out of reach yeah you need a lot of
0: skills a lot of knowledge and a lot of different areas to have to have the job to do the job. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. And, um, and the effects of that professionalization are, you know, there are some downsides, uh, or some challenges that are presented. Well, let's think about some places in worship history where we had a challenge with professionalization. Um, what is it that got us to that moment in history? Maybe, maybe then we can see what got us to this moment in history. Let's Uh, look at the ways the church responded then to the challenges they saw and how might that resource our imagination for responding to the challenges we see now. Um, So doing that kind of, um, uh, yeah, like case study sounding board kind of work, I think um, encourages our pastoral and spirited imagination. um, But helpfully, I think, it, or it can help us, I think, avoid saying, this is the right way, or this is uh, the one way to proceed. Um, here are tools, resources, skills that um, that we can garner from worship history that, uh, yeah, that shape our imagination to do the work now.
0: At some level, that does feel like theological work too but maybe that's another discussion
1: (laughs) yeah it's not (laughs) non-theological but uh but it's also as my probably as my dissertation committee uh readers would say you know it's not necessarily constructive theology either i'm not trying to say um directly uh okay church like i read some stuff from like uh certain subsets of the worship world like uh, i was just reading one about um in response to this, uh, kind of big four worship leader research thing we're doing, like, or not in response to, but an extension of like, you know, one of these like G3 ministries, like this is means you shouldn't sing Bethel Hillsong and whatever. And that's one thing you can do with that information. Um, it's not the wrong thing to do with that information, but, uh, it's a it's a blanket prescription for all churches um, on a kind of moral moral or ethical appeal um, it develops or comes from some certain like theological commitments that are maybe under uh, under realized in the in the work itself mm-hmm. and it purports to be a theological claim or like core at its core a theological claim mm-hmm. like there's there's this this uh, undeniable theological rationale for why you should stop doing this thing. Mm-hmm. And to me, uh, you know, as a historian, I think, okay, what resources are you approaching this kind of claim with? What, um, you know, what's the history of this denomination that you'd be so worried about this kind of thing? Um, what political or sort of power motivations do you have in making these kinds of blanket claims? Who are you trying to control? Because like, mm-hmm. these are all things that you see more clearly when you look back at history. Um, so not to say it can't be theological, but it's yeah. always more than.
0: Um, yeah. That's great. What what got you into studying researching, you know, from that 7-year-old who who got got on seventh the 7th grader, 7th grader. 7th yeah. grader, forgive me. 7th <laughs> <Eleven. Seventh>, 11-year-old <laughs> on the high hat and snare. Yeah. Um, what yeah. what got you into yeah, becoming a worship historian and Yeah. professor at at belmont you
1: know it probably starts at in that that seventh grade um you know experience and the kind of trajectory for me was you know leading worship in my youth group leading worship you know at various like uh you know on like youth sunday or whatever these various sites where we um youth were allowed and empowered to be in leadership and then college ministry and um in college ministry, at some point, maybe my uh, I did five years, so my my super my senior or super senior super year, senior, I don't know, yeah. probably probably my in my senior year or maybe my junior year. I remember uh, having a a moment of a crisis of confidence, really, um, where I had been uh, asked to lead some songs that I didn't feel like I could faithfully lead. Um, and it, at the time, it was about the theological content of the songs. So, you know, at the time, I, I was, yeah, a little bit more naive about the whole situation, as maybe we all are in college. Yeah. But um, and,
0: and that you, maybe even what you were just saying about other ministries, you were... <laughs> Yeah, engaging in those practices where don't sing this because of this, yeah, that's Is that right. kind of thing. That's yeah. right. Yeah. A little bit deeper in those so waters, you've been, for sure. you've been there for friends that are listening that are wrestling with that. <laughs>
1: Even yeah. though
0: you may critique that that's now, right. you can also say right. in, in your that's own right. life. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I'll come back to that maybe if I remember. But um, but so I had this crisis of confidence. And, I, and the one song I remember clearly having d- multiple discussions about was the song um, God's Not Dead. Do you remember the saying, oh, my yeah. God's not that dead, he's surely alive, Daniel he's living the, the inside. Crowder redid, life. yeah. Um, and the, like, it's kind of dumb now, or not dumb, but it's kind. it feels kind of silly now uh, to think about like being upset about that song as like a, you know, 20 year old, but like the idea of like, no, it, it, okay, yes, my God's not dead. He's raised from the dead and ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the father. Like, that's what I thought we were supposed to be proclaiming, right? And like just like the the theological sleight of hand of like Jesus is living in my heart, I realized I'd, I I sort of like after the fact realized like oh my theology is different than it mm-hmm. used to be of like inviting Jesus into your heart and whatever. I grew up Reformed and evangelical, and you know in different places that accent comes through. Those accents yeah. come through. Yeah. So it's like no, the the Spirit is living in me. God sent God's Spirit to be you know with us, uh, and not like and Jesus in my heart is not the proof that God's not dead. like, I just like, like what, what is going on here? Um, so, but other songs too. But anyway, I had a, a kind of crisis of confidence and realized I was asking questions that at the time I did, there weren't good resources for answering them. And, um, so this is, you know, even, even the, like 2010 or whatever, like there, there were some things, um, but, Uh, I think the only book I knew of at the time was that, uh, message in the music book, uh, uh, Woolrath and, uh, that
0: did some of that Lester wrote on that, some of the lyrical theology and analysis. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah. So from there then I kind of uh, was like, well, I guess I have to think about these questions more or answer them myself. Um, and, uh, I think it, yeah, my, staying in school was marked by like not being satisfied with what was available. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, well, I'll keep, I'll keep asking. Maybe, maybe if I, maybe if I do more school, I'll find the answer. And then eventually I realized like, well, the answer is not really just like out there to be found. It has to be cultivated. It has Mm -hmm. to be, um, we have to work it out together. And, um, and now, I mean, I feel like there's a rich and growing network of scholars who are, who are doing the work that I wish I had 15 years ago. Um, and that's exciting.
0: Yeah. So good. All right. So I rarely have fun on this podcast, but a few of our friends threw in questions. (laughs) We rarely have fun. (laughs) We talk about important things, but rarely have fun. So here's, here's one of those fun questions from one of our friends, I think from Lit Fellowship. Adam, you've been researching, writing on the history of contemporary worship. What are a couple of your favorite worship songs from the 1980s? And particularly maybe one from Vineyard, one from Maranatha. These are your your favorites.
1: My favorites, yeah. Well, you know, I feel like pressured because I'm also like one of my one of my hobby horses is the history of integrity music, which you didn't ask about, but um we Vineyard and Maranatha. Yeah. You can okay. throw one well, in if I so wanna say one of the Vineyard songs, I don't even know if it's from the eighties technically or it's slightly later, but one of my favorite worship songs is uh and I think I encountered it in like Reformed Spaces even you'll you'll hear it. it's a setting of um Psalm fifty one. Uh, Eddie Espinosa's yeah, uh, "Change me, My Heart," or oh change God. my heart, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I think that's the one, right? Yeah, Well, I don't have to pull it out anyway. Whatever, whatever the uh, the citation is for it, but yeah, that's change it. my no. heart, oh God, make it ever new. Um, that
0: I've that I've done that in a, one- a salsa. With, oh yeah, with with an all white jazz band. I'm, I'm gonna Imagine have to think. That. Imagine. I am. That. I am trying, but I don't, I don't know if I'm quite getting
1: there. Um, Cause it's slow. I mean, it's ballad. It's a ballad, you know. Um, and honestly, yeah. it's actually the ballads from that era that catch my um, mm-hmm. that catch my heart the most. I think those ballads, the, the like the sweetness of them. We we've kind of we don't really have that kind of sweetness anymore, or or it's too it's too I don't know it's too cliche or something now mm-hmm. but the culture has shifted where um some of those older ballads that were really sweet um like stuff like you know as the deer like you you mm-hmm. it's too on the nose now you know you you couldn't get away with it um it's interesting but, though
0: like some a number of artists are reimagining those songs and right. again there's yeah what do you think yeah. why do you think that is like what why yeah, do you think, well, so, is it a um, desire for nostalgia? Is it, yeah. um, we, we can talk about the marketing side. I think you guys have mentioned this in some of your research about how these catalogs of mm-hmm. songs from 20, 30 years ago, worship songs are being bought by these yeah. large groups. What, what do you think's going on there with, yeah, yeah maybe, maybe it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be what we'd expect on a new Bethel album or new elevation, a song like change my heart oh God or, but. At the same time, some people are re, rearranging, re-releasing, singing them, using them.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think so. I want to also just flag Kelsey Kramer McGinnis's work. She's the one that uh, put that first article about about the back catalog stuff. Yeah. Um. And I've been I have been talking to her a bit about this question. She also wrote about the nostalgia thing. Um, You know, I think one thing is the nostalgia. Um, I also, there's an event coming up at the end of October in a month from now, uh, Matt Redmond's doing like a a back to the heart of worship again, (laughs) uh, (laughs) kind of event, like a one day thing in DC. I think, um, and and worship leaders seem to be talking about that. I think we're at a moment where like, you know, and I think worship leader research isn't a catalyst for this, but a product of it, um, where we feel where people are feeling some anxiety about just collectively about the kind of, yeah, level of industrial kind of stuff, the similar to what was felt in the, you know, in the, in in the coming back to the heart of worship moment um, where, yeah, people are, are feeling the pressures of marketing, of social media, of all these things and, and wanting to kind of clear away the clutter again and, And one way to do that is to reclaim, uh, something that feels like it's pre-industrial. Um, the idea of like, uh, you know, we've probably talked about this elsewhere, but the kind of performed, uh, authenticity inscribed and ascribed and all that, like something about those older songs being sort of perceived as pre-industrial, though they're very much not, um, uh, as like more authentically true, authentically, um, uh yeah um reliable as uh resources for for engaging with god um untainted by the industry and and um yeah so we also see that with indie sort of indie worship projects and even stuff like a few years ago the porter's gate people were like really excited about some of that stuff being like this like well done and and useful but also like not in the center of the industry and now you know i feel like they've they've really had a a lot of uh in part because of popularity like are generally moving that direction right like um they're they're uh released, distributed by integrity. Um, some of these folks are releasing more more stuff and getting popular. Anyway, it's just the natural trajectory of things, but as um, as
0: yeah. And that's probably the trajectory of Matt. Like I have some Matt Redman mm-hmm. you mentioned, like have some of his very early like Stuff that's not on Spotify, but from some of the early conferences he led at with the the drummers tempos all over the, you know, all over the place. And that's what some of my friends in the UK, that's where they... like this is the authentic moment this is it this isn't overproduced this isn't a grammy winning artist you know in Times square with this is like a bunch of teenagers in a field worshiping jesus
1: you know and am i most skeptical too at my most and i don't like to put this hat on too much but at my most skeptical the other thing is like um if if worship leaders feel like they're losing audiences that are like my age and older um, returning to the like raw material from when those audiences came to faith, which is often, you know, continues to be a powerful musical, you know, moment um, like returning to those also like gives them new access to markets that they otherwise hadn't, or, or yeah, maybe had less access to. Um, so it's not just like taking old songs and producing them for young, for Gen Z. It's like taking old songs and reproducing and releasing them so that boomers and you know Gen Xers buy them again, you know. Um back catalogs are always more profitable, you know, in that sense on the on the long tail. But do,
0: do you think we'll ever see like a Gaither homecoming with all these I remember talking with Lester about this even ten year would he I he was my professor 10 or 15 years ago. Like, would there ever be Eddie Espinoza and Matt Redman and Chris Tomlin, you know, yeah. uh, like doing large festivals or events. Mm-hmm.
1: Like at, for it, like to the end for, of like for, a nostalgia for, thing, for the or...
0: geriatric millennials like me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, there you go. They, well, you know, it's funny, as I was just uh talking to somebody about that Jesus People music event that happened a few years ago, where they basically did that. They had like folks from Love Song and whatever, and they like were talking about Chuck Smith, and like it was at Viola. Um, yeah. I think Lester gave yeah, a yeah. talk, like, I mean. Yeah, if you're old enough to have the money to pay for it, like, like, then yeah. Uh, but I I don't foresee that being like a, um, the a sense of like the newer emerging you know powerhouse in the culture.
0: Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. What's you've you've done a lot of research, particularly in the '80s, '90s, different conferences, events in contemporary Christian worship, mostly in America. Like, what's mm-hmm. something that's surprised you in your research about the history of 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 worship
1: yeah i think you know one thing that i um at least from my dissertation work one thing that i really find fascinating is um you know it, it's easy to say things like you know the spirit moved in this place and in that place and like all the you know like we just happen to be moving in the same direction you hear this kind of story of people you know traveling and it's like oh wow the you know god is working and you know this the whatever you know, it's just it's like simultaneous spirit movements, hmm. and you know I'm not skeptical of that. Um, but um, what I what I have found interesting, or one of the things I found really interesting, is tracing the networks of um, dissemination. So you know, um, wow, God's working in Latin America. Look at you know, look at uh, Marcos Witt. You know, this sort of mega mega star of Latin American praise. Now he's sort of the OG uh, praise and worship guy in Latin America, right? And, um, like God was moving there just as, uh, God was moving in the U S and it's like, well, yes. And, um, you know, a little bit conspiracy theory level stuff here, but like, and his parents were ladder rain trained missionaries. And he talks about in his memoir being inspired by integrity albums from the late nineties early eighties rather mm-hmm. And like the the live sound, capturing the live sound of congregational worship for his albums. And he did these, you know, seminars in the summer up at Bible Temple Important Oregon, under the music, the guy who was the music minister there for a while and Bible Temple is where CCLI was founded and, or, you know, or out of there CCLI mm-hmm. was founded. Um, so like, you know, yes, the spirit may have been moving in Latin America and Um, there are these clear, like, it wasn't like they just magically came up with the same theology of worship Mm -hmm. in different places, uh, or mystically came up with them. Um, people brought those stories and those books and those teachings, uh, they traveled them around and they were very active in promoting them in other places. So that, that veil of kind of, um, mysterious, mystical, like spirit movement, uh, alongside, the actual historical trajectories of these ideas and thoughts. Um,
0: yeah. is surprising. Yeah. In, in some sense surprising, but as, as I hear you say that I'm thinking about even just my own studies and masters around Azusa street and like other, yeah. other spaces that were, yeah. Breaking out in revival phenomenon and things like that. There was often strong connect- network connections, even a right. you know, hundred years before what we're, we're talking about now of, he read this book, or he visited this That's conference, right. or they were all together in Kansas, or they were all together in Texas right. and, right. and spread, spread that, which feels like a very evangelical and Pentecostal phenomenon where they're often not connected by denominational ties, but by these mm-hmm. larger network ties, because yeah. um, they're so anti-denominational that often they're independent movements, but then there's these strong... Yeah. Yeah. Strong network ties. Yeah.
1: yeah and, and speaking of the worship history thing, you know, like, so, you know, my fear, perhaps pastoral concern here is that, like, if you don't ever um, detail the kind of historical trajectory of these ideas, they appear or they, they come with more authority than maybe is warranted. Mm-hmm. Um, like they come as uh, with the authority of the spirit alone. Um, versus also the authority of a particular, you know, theological tradition or person or whatever, they come un sort of unconnected to those. And, um, historically, like I was just talking with students just in a uh, class, uh, with students talking about this, um, and I forget what era, it's medieval, but this story of like, uh, you know, this this document that like descended above the altar in, you know, this church. And then like for three days, it was like floating in the air and the church was praying for it to descend. And then finally it descended into the hands of the priest. And then the priest read it and it was all this like liturgical legislation that was like, just happened to be like everything that the priest already like wanted to have to happen. That, yeah. And, yeah. and um, you know, it, it's not like, yeah, I I, I want to tread carefully to say like that the I don't want to say it's not the spirit, but to say also like if you let thing if we let things by um by our sort of like disregard for his history, um if we let them come with more authority than is warranted to them, then it becomes impossible to engage with them meaningfully or constructively. So like the basic idea that. God inhabits praise, you know, we just talk about this like core foundational praise and worship theology. If you never say that that's what the theology is, but you just always come with the expectation that like, yeah, of course God, like we just know this to be true. um, Then you can't, it's more difficult to engage meaningfully with that theological claim and say like, okay, by what means do we actually defend or promote this idea other than just our experiential encounters? Like does it have to follow from a scriptural um, you know, command, like what's our sacramentality, what's our, you know, idea of sacramental authority in this sense, mediating God's presence to us. Um, and once we have the raw materials, then we can engage meaningfully. But if we never, if we pretend the raw materials don't exist or we think it's just a spirit, then it will always seem like somebody's worshiping rightly and somebody's worshiping wrongly. Get on board or, you know, you're out of the will of the spirit. And that's a dangerous place uh, to me.
0: Hmm. You've, yeah, yeah. You've been what, maybe the last year or so, been working with a group called Worship Leaders Research. Um, we've you mentioned it um, just to, yeah a little bit ago in this conversation. I'd love to just hear, and for the listeners who aren't familiar yet with that group, what what is it, and what are you what are you trying to do with with that group?
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, so uh, Worship Leader Research is a collaborative group. Um, with myself, Shannon Baker who's at Baylor University, Mike Tapper who's at Southern Wesleyan University, he's kind of our um the cat herder of us. <laughs> um Elias Dummer who's a music marketer and former frontman for the City Harmonic and Mark Jalicure who's a worship pastor and teacher uh, in Moncton, uh, New Brunswick, Canada. And Um, the five of us have been working on the interface between, um, the worship music industry and worship leaders or churches. So, uh, so that, that dynamic we had kind of proposed so far, these, these two phases of a, a Calvin Institute grant as sort of funding our work. Um, the first phase asking about the songs and the contributors to the top song lists. What do we know about that? Like, let's just describe the situation, uh, of the, of the market at the moment. Um, and just really one tiny tiny piece of it you know there's there's a lot more to to talk about but we talked about um you know, the big four contributors uh Bethel Elevation Hillsong and Passion um, who uh, are responsible for either producing or platforming almost all of the songs that appeared on the top charts between 2010 and 2020 of the
0: top 25 charts so these most sung um, songs in churches the most sung all are, songs that's all right. are connected with in some way, with these big four, it's with what, these four, what,
1: yeah. that's right. And about a quarter of all of the of those songs that appeared on the charts are connected to multiple of those mm. uh, big four too. So it's you know it's not just sort of they're not siloed either. They're they're cross referencing.
0: It's a good collab. Um, a good collab, or so oh, in some ways. Yeah, like, like
1: yeah. As we have this quote in one of the things from Phil Wickham, where he's just like, "It's just a family, you know, like our family." And he, Anyway, it's kind of telling, I think. Um, so that was phase one. Phase two, we did a survey of 400 worship leaders asking them about their attitudes toward the industry, especially about new songs and uh, the brands or, or church groups and artists that they get them from. So we've been kind of rolling out some things on, on that. Um, I'm not sure when this podcast will post, but we're working on a, a kind of a bigger article right now on... Um, sort of detailing, you know, worship leaders say that it's generally, um, slightly more unimportant than important that, um, uh, that a song is associated or or the association of a song with a particular artist is generally uh, slightly favors unimportant, but that when we actually ask about specific associations, people feel much more strongly about a song's association with a particular artist. So in general, they report, um, it's not that important who song songs associated with but uh but then when you actually look at a specific associations they report it's a much higher uh, degree of importance um do you have so, any an
0: analysis have, i mean I, I know it's forthcoming but yeah wh- why is it that oh it doesn't really matter who wrote this song but then it sounds like when they hear brian johnson bethel it's like oh or you yeah, know now like I is that feelings, is that yeah. the case yeah why do you it think it is the case yeah. yeah
1: so we've been exploring a few angles and and there's no i mean there's no like uh you know golden ticket here for figuring sure. out what exactly anyone's affiliations are. But uh, but sorting through the few hundred comments on these questions, um, really what you see is folks uh, generally want to believe that uh, they can assess a song on its own merits and on its own specifically theological credentials, the content of a song, it's it's biblical or theologically uh, accurate or credible or whatever. Um And they have negative associations with particular artists and groups when they feel that they are at like a a theological disagreement or kind of a theological difference with those particular artists. Um, So uh, in this case, Bethel gets the most negative responses uh, uh, or has the most negative attitudes. um, But um, Bethel also has the most songs in the top 25. So what do you do with that dynamic, right? Um, it's like a, uh, so yeah, so we do, we talk about that. Some of it is, uh, I'm I, writing about sort of brand longevity. I mean, Hillsong's been in the game about 20 years longer than uh, Bethel and Hillsong still has the highest sort of positive uh, feelings despite like we've talked about the documentary, yeah right. moral failure, very um, public. So, yeah, so the ethical failings of leadership or whatever doesn't factor into the kind of brand association or people feel like they can they can distance the, the brand of Hillsong um, and the ethical failings. Whereas with Bethel, Bethel, the theological differences uh, they don't disaffiliate from the content of the songs. Um, So that's one possibility. Other things we're looking at: uh, social proof, how social proof works for markets. Um, So we're getting a little technical on the uh, empirical experimental data. But um, you know, how is it that um, what other people or or, or sites for encountering songs shape how we uh, feel about those songs and the people who create them? So. yeah, what is, what is that kind of social proof element? Um, yeah, there's a, there's kind of a, a handful of possibilities and directions for um, the really complex world that song choice lives in. And, and I think really our main goal is to say there's a lot more happening here than just one worship leader's ability to say, this song has good theological content and therefore therefore I'll sing it. And eventually, as a result of its good theological content, it will end up on the charts, Mm -hmm. um, because there are always more songs that are great theologically than could end up on the charts. So what are those other factors?
0: Yeah, I mean, you're hitting into, as you mentioned, Hillsong, some of these others that have maybe differences in belief or practices or even the ethics of the songwriters, publishers, related churches... Like mm-hmm. I can think of dozens of videos of why not to sing these songs coming from yeah, different yeah. communities, some that you ever mentioned. Like, I guess what what's important or maybe things that you teach your students as you wrestle through this, when we're trying to discern whether to use this worship song, maybe not so much the the singability, which is a part of mm-hmm. that or musically is it interesting and does it fit within the culture Mm -hmm. of our church Mm -hmm. but when there are differences in beliefs practices or even ethics of of those songwriters like what do we do when it's when it's Different than our own tradition, different than our own way of being. Can can we use those songs? Should we stop singing them? As you mentioned, that some say, yeah. What's your advice? Yeah,
1: my uh, my researcher, you know, hat says these are local, you know, issues. These are things that press back into the ecclesial community and say you need to work this out. If I put on my own pastoral hat, um, the things I am thinking about are the relationships between. Um, uh power so economic it's so singing songs in churches drives economic capital or power toward uh, institutions that then are also invested in um, procuring uh, political social spiritual power so if we think there's something bad in the water um, and we uh, kind of know it by its fruits um, then uh, then we have to be serious about the kind of economics of the situation it's not um, you know, it's not innocuous, or it's not sort of um, what's that word for, like uh, in a in a medicine, or like in a like an ingredient that doesn't do anything.
0: or yeah, it's or uh, yeah, yeah. Innocu- innocuous. I uh, think that's yeah.
1: yeah. well anyway, whatever. It is. Like it's it's not it's not not it's not nothing. Yeah. Um. to sing songs from groups we, dis- we disagree with. And I think song choice is always embedded in like an ethical kind of commitment. So for me, I have a particular set of ethics. I think it's easy. The cha- one thing I see is like, it's easy to say like, Oh, you shouldn't sing those songs. They're associated with um, this theological idea um, or community that, that I disagree theologically with that feels safe, but, but, it's much harder to make that choice around ethics, and that's like uh, non-sort of specifically theological ethics, um, and it's. I feel like it's just as important. Um, So, uh, you know, will I sing songs from churches that are also, and this is, you know, talking about myself here, but songs that are expressly anti-LGBTQI plus, like, no, like maybe, maybe that's also, maybe there are other standards, you know, not to be mudslinging of like, who's doing what wrong, but like, I know that my, my use of songs is embedded in kind of these bigger networks that are, that are powerful that are ethical that are unethical (laughs) that are you know so um that's a consumer choice thing i i that's one lever i have to pull uh so i'm gonna pull it and there are always more songs so i mean it's not like we have a dearth of songs and we're like only using the few songs that are available
0: i think yeah graham graham kendrick said when i interviewed him a year or two ago like we went from 250 shared songs to (laughs) 2.5 million or something like yeah there's just an, that's right an and incredible I, amount
1: and, and so i think you know the fear always the fear I, one fear i hear is you know oh well like we want to pick songs that everybody knows and like great that's fine and also i would say like what work are you doing on a regular basis to help your con form your congregation into a congregation that are song learners mm-hmm. um that expect to learn new songs that expect to learn songs that don't just sound like the radio. And if you feel like that's a problem for your community in the sense of like, well, you know, we would lose people or whatever, then you have different issues you need to work out. Mm -hmm. Like if your song, if you have, if you have uh, put the burden on songs or on worship songs and worship leading in a particular style for your church growth, um, like you need to reevaluate a little bit, of uh what is your purpose and mission i think um and that's a scary and dangerous kind of conversation but i think um you know uh uh, yeah i think it matters so like people have said like oh so what songs do you want to have like this whole idea of like we want to sing songs that are going to like last the ages and you know that people sing on their deathbeds and i my response is i hope on my deathbed i am as open to new songs that might meet that moment than i as i am today like, yes, there are songs that will comfort me and I probably won't forget those. And I want to be, um, I want to be open to the new and the novel. This is a false dichotomy. Um, so don't present it as, um, as one.
0: You and I have yeah, been a part of a, a group that's actually trying to do some of this work, a group of kind of reformed worship leaders, theologians, I guess there's a worship historian on hey. that too. <laughs> You probably and, are switching hats. Hey, you here's the that. thing.
1: You're, you're, you're as, you're a historian too, whether you like it or not, it, not least by ex, your own experience, the, the longevity this, of your geriatric millennialism. Yes.
0: This is, this is everything Adam writes or posts. I, I, for those of you that don't don't know me or him very well, I'm always like, oh yeah, I am I know that guy, or there's a friend of a friend who was at that conference or event. And hey, what did you know? This guy was was, also there. (laughs) You're making me
1: sound like I'm just like the most you know pedestrian researcher ever. Like, of course that's true. Adam, come on. Like, oh, you
0: you have that book. I've I've got the original autographed (laughs) on that first edition. First edition autographed by. (laughs) Oh well, yeah, we've been working together with on musical liturgical theological reflection on some of the top. CCLI, like the top hundred with kind of reformed theologians, worship mm-hmm. leaders, historians. Um, yeah, I guess as, as we've been doing that work, had some great other folks a part of that, some of these factors of thinking about how are we taking these songs from other communities that do have a unique theology or practice of worship or even a unique mm-hmm. ethic of worship, what, what might be a reform perspective on contemporary worship, um, mm-hmm. knowing that, again, you've, you've come from those communities, have served in those. I'm, you know, my students that are listening to this are, are very much a part of those communities too. Like, what what is that relationship between maybe reformed theology, reformed worship, and yeah, embracing or not embracing aspects mm-hmm. of contemporary worship?
1: Yeah, I think there's kind of two directions here one is the question uh, and this is a question that comes up in my in my worship leader research stuff too question of the content of the theology and then kind of the broader apparatus or traditions uh, musical styles these other kinds of things so you know it was funny when we first started working on this project we we all did like an initial pass on the same songs and then went you kind of went back and discussed them and you know there are between you and I, even there were like you know half a dozen songs where we had we had come down on the opposite end of the spectrum of yeah. whether or not a song was appropriate for reformed worship.
0: I was and like I think, green, let's go. You were like red, yeah. let's not, or vice versa. Like you <laughs> yeah. were, yeah, this is a great one.
1: Well, and and the thing is, and the challenge, and at least in the reformed community, uh, is that you know we have we have some uh, confessions, we have we have certain kinds of theological documents, but we also are a pretty richly diverse. Community. So, to answer a a question about like, is this fitting for reformed worship? Is to you have to answer the question first. Like, what are the kind of essential marks of of reformed worship? And I think there that underlying um, openness, because there's not just one reformed, you know, way of doing worship. um, I think that underlying difference or diversity really it makes it challenging to make any blanket statement. So. For me, the concerns, and I, I wrote about this recently. As a result of working on that project, I, I wrote a little um, kind of blogish article thing on the Reformed Journal about contemporary worship and and reformed worship, kind of side by side. And and really, you know, what I was trying to do there was not provide an answer, but provide a, a kind of a, a renewed a renewed interest in the areas of discussion Mm. and i said you know really there's there's kind of three things that there are more than three but here are three things that we need to like revisit one of them is the question of style one of them is the question of sacramentality and one of the question uh is the kind of individual versus communal Mm -hmm. or covenantal community kind of um kind of Aspect, And, you know, I could go into any one of those three things, but, um, just to say that like no single one of them is straightforward. Yeah. Um, it's always more complex. Um, yeah. Do you want me, I mean, I can, do you want to, I think, yeah, I'll I'll throw out
0: some stuff. I think, uh, yeah, I was working just recently on this. Um, we've kind of now broken up into smaller groups and then are going to come back together on this project and i think it's a lot of the songs i, I had read your article and then the next week sort ha- had my small group and i i was reflecting on so many of the lyrics the ones in our like next 10 or 20 that that i was working mm-hmm. through had a lot of like never gonna let me down or never yeah and like yes, really was, do
1: we really believe like, that there right? was like
0: three or four of those and as as we were talking through this i think there was an, maybe a sensitivity or an oversensitivity of the prosperity gospel yeah. like as we were reading that. And we were also wrestling, though, with covenant theology. Like, yeah. actually, this is the God who's made covenant with us and will always be faithful says, to that covenant. Yeah. Right. And so right. what what we came up with is this idea of like, often now these songs are talking about an active God who's a part of this big story, this big cosmic mm-hmm. story. But it always comes down in the bridge or the chorus to about how that impacts me personally, rather than maybe a reform view is how is how is my story being brought up into God's story? Like, yes, God's active. He's he's faithful to me. But the more covenantal idea of like, yeah, he's never going to let me down, but that doesn't mean I'm always going to get my way. And I think, as, yeah. yeah, 2023, those that are even in the reform circles, like, we know we're not going to get our way. We're very aware of that. <laughs> well, but yeah. but also there's, or some of us may think we can get our way because of yeah. our own status within culture, society, socioeconomic yeah. standings. But I guess, yeah, that's one thing, like there's a sensitivity towards the prosperity gospel, but also a yeah. desire to embrace this covenantal theology of God's faithfulness and his promises and blessings. Um yeah, like I guess despite some of these challenges, why are these songs so often used? Not just again in charismatic communities or non-denom evangelical, but are sung all the time everywhere at CRC churches that maybe land a little more pietistic, or in mm-hmm. university chapels of you know reformed yeah. connected institutions. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why are these songs that maybe aren't landing or, or aren't consistent mm-hmm. with some of these? kind of theologies or public theologies of these denominations why why are they still being used all the time
1: yeah well i think you know one thing is um there uh some of them really appeal to things that i think we aspirationally believe we may not be actually true but we want them to be true um so even in that turn toward the kind of like, yeah, you've, uh, you, you will, you always have been faithful or whatever, like you've never let me down. Um, we want to understand the challenges in our lives through that kind of lens, that it's not God's fault, you know? Um, you know, this like problem of evil kind of thing. Uh, you know, we don't really go that far into it, but, um, so we, we, it's aspirational. I think there's an aspirational affirmation of these songs that this should be true. And I want this to be true. I think, you know, we've known, we've known for a long time, like American Christianity is incredibly sort of individualistic. The kind of Christian Smith thing of like moral therapeutic deism is alive and well in our churches too. It's not, you know, it's not somehow that like we have uh, we have this elect community that somehow like theologically uh, you know um, pure or something like we are still part of the part of our context in the mm-hmm. world. And, um, and so they appeal to us, um, yeah, as we're part of a context, so you know, one thing I appreciate years ago, John Wively said to me of like, we're talking about I don't remember how it was, but I had like presented it as like a false dichotomy of like reformed or evangelical, and he's like, no, the CRC is reformed and evangelical; it's both of those things. And um, what does it look like to you know for it to exist as both of those things? And I think this is kind of one of the one of the avenues that it does. And I think you know, generally, the thing about contemporary worship music, one thing um, that's compelling about it is that singing it also helps us feel like we're part of something that's happening in the world. Um, You know, whether yeah, it's the social media influence of like you know all the like God is God is blessing these songs and kind of the bigger narratives around you know why and how these songs are popular and whatever. But um, but when we sing them, we do feel part of a bigger community than our sometimes you know little rural uh, you know agriculturally based uh, crc church in uh, you know Pell, iowa or whatever right like that we they give they make they give us access to that kind of um experiences which is something i think generally good mm-hmm. um you know or, or or at least it's it's uh very human well um, it can,
0: it's yeah you know this you've heard some of my presentations like particularly christians in the middle east who have converted and yeah. are in a sense very alone from family like these songs in their own view and in, in their own words connect them with their faith the yeah. global global yeah. christianity yeah that's why some of those yeah 1990s songs that we mentioned earlier are still
1: still the well. hits
0: and live and well yeah. in the 100 150 yeah. Tur- yeah. turkish churches or in jordan that's or right. other places that's right,
1: that's um, right. And, and then it'd be simple to like, from a, at least from like a Western kind of like critical lens to say like, oh, look how much of a problem that is, you know, like this is just another version of like colonialism or whatever. And yes, uh, but not just that, like it's more complex and and kind of a tricky, um, situation than just to say like, this is a bad thing that like Middle Eastern Christians are finding their faith expression through, australian mega church songs mm-hmm. or something right like mm-hmm. yes there's a challenge there um it's not a new challenge speaking of history uh but um it's also um not an easy challenge to kind of to to solve uh, yeah so i think that applies to our kind of reformed context as well So we're, we're in multiple um, sometimes competing but sometimes just overlapping contexts yeah. and uh, we we don't necessarily try to resolve them.
0: One, one of uh, this kind of on this similar topic, one of our friends in Liturgy Fellowship, if you're not a member, it's a Facebook group, check it out. Lots of good conversations like this. They, they, they're they asking you, Adam, like without taking songs primarily from these big four that we've, we've been chatting about, how do you imagine the church can sing songs that everyone knows? So like, uh, like I think what they're highlighting is these songs are on radio, they're on Spotify playlists, like they're, arguably good, like maybe not theologically good or ethically good, yeah. depending on that, but they're arguably popular songs. Maybe that's another yeah. way to say it. Like yeah. And that, which means they're, they're good, at least in someone's popular standards.
1: Yeah. How, how do you, how do they become popular? That's yeah. another, that's yeah, that, yeah, that, but...
0: yeah. a Discussion. But, but like, I think the heart here is trying to understand, you know, if you are drawing from some of these independent sources or even original, that, can get tricky the first time I've sung one of my original songs at church or at Dort or in in London. Like it, it it didn't land. It didn't, it didn't hit like if I would have just went into a chorus of how great is our God and then did three modulations or something.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, you're pointing to a, a kind of essential question, which is what is worship music for? And I think, you know, if worship music for, if worship music is for, primarily like how well it hits um you know that we have to recognize that that is um a value judgment on what matters in worship music Mm -hmm. and we have to say like okay if that's the game we're gonna play then yes like you're gonna have to use the tools of uh and respond to the situation that the industry of worship music has cultivated over decades Um, to play the game like um, it's going to have to have a bridge that does a certain kind of thing because that's what people are conditioned to expect it's going to have to do something in particular so i mean if that's if that um if that is what they mean by sort of singing songs everybody knows um yeah uh the problem is not that there are popular songs i think the problem the main problem is that is when it becomes um we're sort of constricted by what's popular and to say like i only like my pastor won't let me use songs that aren't on the top 100 like that would be a a problem um using a song that's popular um i don't yeah or using some songs that are popular i don't think there's any problem with that inherently or just inherently based on their popularity um i think it's that other kind of context of like what do you do with the worship Theology, the worship formation that is part and parcel of these specific types of songs. Yeah, Like I was at a, and I'm just talking too much in a row here, but I was at a, <laughs> a I was at an event a few weeks, two weeks ago now about a new kind of like a worship song project. And, and, you know, I was in this room for like, with like 30 songwriter type people. And there's like, Hey, we really like these songs. We think they're good. And in order for churches to be able to use them, we're going to have to have like teaching sessions. We're going to have to do like, um, you know a uh, uh, tour to like show people how to do something different than what they already do. And, um, and I think, yeah, they had their finger on the pulse though. They thought they were coming to it for the first time, you know, sort of novel, a novel idea that they, uh, that they sort of stumbled upon. But like, if it, we know how to do these songs, we know what to expect in these songs. We know like how the songs work. Um, we know how to give ourselves over to these types of songs. Um the challenge with me programming um, "Change My Heart, O oh God" is that like people don't won't necessarily experience it as worship. I'm putting you know scare quotes in the air here, <laughs> um, as worship. And and if we want them to be able to experience the song as worship, we have to recognize that like we've collapsed that paradigm into a very narrow um, set of possibilities it, musically it, and Yeah,
0: what you're saying reminds me again a couple reformed theologian, John Whitfleet talks about worship leader's job as a spiritual dietitian. And particularly yeah. when it comes to choosing songs, like, are we just, I know my kids would love to have Culver's every night, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but that's not, it's, it's well, not healthy for them. Yeah. Right. Like and, they... I, and,
1: and, and that's a healthy paradigm. And I think we need to say, we need to think about how we, not just like what options you know like okay you need to have like a balance of proteins and whatever but like recognize that like we have a ground beef based diet you know we have a uh we have a, a wheat based or a you know yeah. like and and the thing that is challenging would be to move over to say like rice being our primary yeah. um you know source of of nutrition or whatever or sort of filler filler kind of food like i think it's that more fundamental level that's the challenge um, which to me it you know feels like when I hear when I read comments on the worship leader research research when I when I look at like social media forums I was just reading Nelson Cowan's uh, recently released article and um, uh, journal issue in liturgy on on brands and um, you know over and over again I see this idea that like oh the theological content um, you know what do we do with the theological content and like yes that's important and this more fundamental level of like, you know, you you, you can't just or you can't think that just replacing or emphasizing different theological themes is gonna like change the paradigm. Um, like, I mean, if that's all you want to do, that's fine. But like, if the paradigm is the problem, then you have to go deeper than just oh, we need more songs about covenant theology than about individual theology. You have to say like, what about this whole experience has oriented me toward expecting? You know that that god is working for me individually and not on behalf of my you know community as a whole or something right
0: is that then maybe drawing from like woltersdorf's ashes trumpets what's the other tears like where it where it's more the 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 entire aesthetic or culture our own posture towards worship our own expectations yeah if it's not just changing theological content lyrical theology what what is it that w- may bring about, yeah, some of these lasting changes?
1: Yeah. I mean, or
0: maybe I can, to the historian in you, what's worked in the past, Adam, <laughs> when, when the church has wrestled with this in the past?
1: Yeah, there you go. I, I don't know that I've thought about it in these particular terms, but, yeah. um, I mean, it, yeah, it's, I guess the Walter thing is helpful in that sense that like, it's a, it's totalizing, um, the paradigm is totalizing, and so you have to, you know, like what, like the thing I, I read sometimes, or in a few years there was like a viral. I think it was Michael Rhodes, was that his name? He wrote this little thing about like the Psalms and laments and contemporary worship songs, and it was one of those sort of like duh kind of moments, like like we all know this is true, but you put some words on it, and everyone's like ah, um, but like why is it that we don't have more contemporary worship songs that have lament themes? right? Like basic question. Well, because contemporary worship music is not built for lament. Like it, that's, that's not how the paradigm works. So it's not a matter of like switching out lyrics and you get the same result, but it's about lament this time instead of about triumph or instead about overcoming or waymaking or whatever. Um, the paradigm itself is incompatible with those uh, other theologics. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have triumphant bridge builds, around laments or something, mm. right? Well, maybe you do, I don't know, but you know, the, the, the operation of it and our expectations are much more deeply coded than just in the text,
0: the structure, the style, genre, mm-hmm. like culture. That may need shifting.
1: Yeah. The fact that we like talk about like this sort of paradigm of like, okay, three opening th- three songs and then, or four songs and then a sermon or two songs and then the sermon thing. And then three songs, or whatever, like the whole the whole thing has to mix. And maybe that's a Walter Storff, kind of bit of a fittingness, you know, and, and um, I'm thinking about, yeah, what book, anyway, whatever, it doesn't matter what book it is, but the kind of fittingness of the material to the, the thing that you're hoping to like offer for people. So a song like change my heart. Oh God does something liturgically, if you will. Um, it has a function. That's not uh, sort of the same function that, the top 25 worship songs have. And so like, what do you do with a song that just works differently? Yeah.
0: Yeah. It may not fit where yeah. a song normally, if you're just doing fill in yeah. the blank, it yeah. may not fit yeah. there. You may have to think yeah, differently.
1: And even culturally, like people like, all excited, like, wow, Waymaker, the song by, you know, this West African lady like became a popular song. Like finally we have a song that like comes from the, you know, not the anglophone well it's anglophone too but um you know not from white dominant whatever but it's like no the song was able to be popular because it does all the things that these other songs do like it's Mm -hmm. there's nothing you like distinctive about it um uh, yeah sorry but like i don't you know like so it is what it is it fits in the paradigm it plays well with um with the the kind of yeah particular spirituality that's yeah. already in place, it doesn't ask us to do anything different. Mm-hmm.
0: The popular, both the popular styles, the lyrical content, the structure of it, yeah. it fits well within what's already yeah. there.
1: Yeah.
0: All right, two more things. We got to we got to wrap up. Loving it. Um, this was from again one of our colleagues, friends. We're doing three rounds. Of which CC, oh, no. which CCLI song would you use? And in one sentence, why? If you're, if oh you're able, one sentence. Um, shout to the Lord or Revelation song? Um,
1: shout to the Lord because Shout to the Lord is uh, and will always ever be a bigger song than Revelation song. Mm. Speaking of global, you know, or like songs that people know.
0: It's it's interesting though uh, a whole other thing, but multilingual service recently where a Revelation Song was what students chose because we they knew it in six or seven languages. It's interesting how those songs in different communities. Mm-hmm. How about uh, How He Loves Us with Sloppy Wet Kiss or Reckless Love with
1: ooh. not
0: unforeseen um, but Sloppy I, Wet.
1: Unfortunately, uh, I have a negative. Um, uh, experiential encounter with um, How We love. so I'm going to go with Reckless Love but also Reckless Love because it's like the only 6-8 worship song and like we need to like say what you will about the content um, the musical paradigm is works it works remarkably well I, we could do an i would do an analysis on your show just of that song of that, that
0: song thing. i i always loved when that came out like sitting with a biblical studies scholar in new testament who you know knows luke back and forth and a systematic theologian no and a systematic theologian oh. and say hey is is god's love seemingly reckless and yeah. it was great to yeah. see them on new testament side they're like yeah i mean you leave your, field, your sheep in open field, in yeah. the, the systematician. Yeah. Anyways, how about uh, firm foundation he won't and, or days of Elijah? Uh,
1: oh, I, I mean, I love days of, Eli- days of Elijah. See, that's like touching on like the heartstrings of my, you know, worship. Thing, with so. with
0: the motions, with all no. the, uh, do you the know motions that?
1: are fine. I do know the motions. The that's motions how- are fine.
0: That's how reformed are you? I've talked to friends at Calvin and other places, yeah. and that's one of those songs. Still, if you pull out today yeah. in like college ministry, yeah, you you see full embodied worship. Is that
1: right? Yeah. They still do the mo- wow. I'm impressed to know to know that yeah. to
0: know that. Hey, just as we wrap up, thanks. Yeah, it's such a joy to see you, chat with you, learn from you, discuss things. Um, what what challenge or encouragement do you have for worship leaders, musicians, or kind of budding? Theologians who are thinking about these issues, what mm-hmm. what maybe would you challenge them with, yeah. or yeah. or encourage them with?
1: Yeah, I think if if there's one thing I want to want y'all to take away from our conversations, that things are always more complex than they seem, and that may not seem like an encouragement, but I want it to be an encouragement because um, I think that you have more flexibility than you think you have because of that complexity, that there's actually more possibility. Because of that complexity, there's more, um, there's yeah, there there's more of a chance that like that thing you take a risk on, um, working out, um, and and not you not needing to be beholden to the kind of paradigms that you think are expected of you, worship history says it's always been complex. When we think about current context, it's always more complex than it appears. And that's a, yeah, that's a possibility. That's an opportunity for us, I think.
0: Adam, yeah. Thanks for your scholarship, friendship, and just a chance to chat. It's a joy to have you.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me on and letting me uh, get on all my soapboxes.
0: Thanks for being a part of the Worship Theology podcast. Please check out other episodes and also check out Adam's podcast, Worship Nerds. Is that right? yeah the worship nerds the conversations on contemporary worship if you want to take these discussions a little higher a little deeper that's a great podcast to do that so thanks again adam thanks